Minnesotans. <laughs> Let's open up with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for a wonderful day, a beautiful sunshine, Lord, and we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word and to learn more about how you wrap up the world and uh, bring your kingdom. We pray that you'd give us clarity of thought, that we may have understanding into your scriptures. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry, I'm a little under the weather. I've got a plugged up ear, so if I'm talking overly loud, I apologize. It's just I can't hear anything out of this ear. So, um, yeah, huh? <laughs> now, I want to begin by reminding you, we're just in a little series here called Important Terms in Eschatology. And I actually phrased it, Eschatology Made Easy. That's my attempt. But I want to give you a little ex explanation as to why I'm doing this. First of all, when we get to chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, we're going to be getting into the second coming of Christ, where he comes to defeat the enemies of God. And there we want to start putting some timelines together. So I thought it would be important for us to understand these terms, the day of the Lord, the parousia, which is the technical term for the coming of the Lord, and Daniel's 70th week. Now let me give you another reason why I think this is important. I've had some pushback over the years when I teach eschatology, and people say, well, why is it relevant? Well, let me tell you why. <clears throat> when I was a brand new Christian... I started to despair about ever knowing the Bible because of eschatology. And I'll give you a man who actually wrote a book that confused me, and it's a man who I dearly miss. We just lost him. It was R.C. Sproul. How many ever read R.C. Sproul's book, The Last Days According to Jesus? Anybody ever read his book? Well, in The Last Days According to Jesus, he claims that the Olivet Discourse is primarily fulfilled in 70 A.D. So here... I'm a brand new believer, and I look at one of the great theologians of the church says, no, all of this happened in 70 AD. Then you have other good theologians are saying, no, this is going to happen at the end of the world. And I thought, with, what, with such confusion, how can anyone know the future, and therefore, we might as well give it up. And I'll tell you what it did for me as a brand new believer. It gave me a little bit of incredulity to say, if the scriptures are that unclear, is any of this going to happen at all? So what I want to do is I want to address this issue to show them there really is clarity. You know, John MacArthur several years ago at a shepherd's conference, he said, did God muddle the ending? Do we believe in the perspicuity of Scripture? Do we believe that the Bible is clear everywhere else except when we get to the end? And his obvious answer to that is, of course, it's clear regarding the ending as well. Okay, let me give you another analogy. When I was in seminary, I was brand new out of the airline industry, and one of the big debates was on the atonement. And this has been going on for years. It's, not nothing, it's nothing new. But the debate is about the substitutionary atonement. Many claim that that's just one theory among many. You see, many people believe that, well, the reason Jesus died was to be a good example. They call it the moral influence theory. And so you go into a seminary class where all these different theories of the atonement are put up, and if you don't know any better, you think, well, the substitutionary atonement is just one theory among many, until you start looking at the data. And then once you understand the Bible, and you see Jesus over and over saying that he did not come to serve, but to, or excuse me, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for the many, you start seeing the idea that substitution is everywhere. So my point is, is the Bible is actually very clear in teaching not many theories of the atonement, but the substitutionary atonement. It's very clear. It's just we have to unpack the data. The same thing applies to eschatology. It's actually very clear. 
I don't know how it gets so confounded. And at the end of the day, what I'll show you when it comes to the timing of the rapture, all we're arguing about is when does wrath come? Because if you believe that you're saved from the wrath of God, at the end of the day, that's all you have to decide is when does the wrath come? Therefore, you're exempt from that time period. Okay, that's what I want to lay out for you. So if you recall last time, we looked at three ter terms excuse me, that are all related. This Daniel's 70th week, the term the parousia of Christ, which is the technical term for the second coming of Christ, his second advent. And we also looked at the term the broad day of the Lord. And if you recall, I went into the 70th week prophecy and I showed you where the 70 weeks comes from. So if anyone wonders why do you keep using the term 70th week, now you know. It comes from Daniel chapter 9. It's the last seven years that will unfold prior to the messianic age being consummated where Christ will reign from the earth. Now, the slide that we left off in, and I know I actually went past this one, but I want to review it. What I did is I likened two terms to Daniel's 70th week, and that's the day of the Lord, the first bullet point, and the parousia, again, the technical term for the coming of Christ. And notice again, in both cases, the day of the Lord comes like a thief and the parousia comes like a thief. And the grand point there that we want to see is if one preceded the other, one would cease to come like a thief because you would be tipped off to the other. Okay? So that's why we know that they're coterminous. Now, when does the 70th week of Daniel come about? Does anyone know the date of that? Well, no. Therefore, we can conclude that comes like a thief. So what we can start seeing is when we unpack the data, the day of the Lord the parousia, which is the coming of Christ, and Daniel's 70th week really coincide. And you see, this is what gives us the doctrine of imminence. One of the doctrines that the church has to recover is the doctrine of imminence because it is the primary reason why you and I are to live godly lives and it is the primary motivating factor why it is that you and I have a blessed hope. You and I are not waiting for Antichrist eagerly. We're waiting for Christ. Okay, now let me just talk a couple of ways in which imminence is distorted. Some people on our side who are in the pre-trib rapture camp, I, I heard this this morning, anyone listening to Jan Markell? Wonderful speaker on, but he talked about the doctrine of imminence and yet gave many signs that are occurring now that are supposedly tipping us off to when the coming of Christ is going to happen. Well, how can you on the one hand have signs that must occur prior to an event that's supposed to happen or could happen at any moment. See, if something has to happen prior to an event, it's no longer imminent. So what gives something imminence is the fact that an event is certain to happen, but number two, you have no idea when it's going to happen. That's what gives us the doctrine of imminence. Now, let me just show you some other passages in Scripture so you see that this doctrine is really everywhere. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to James chapter 5, verse 8. James chapter 5, verse 8. Now, we're tying this doctrine of imminence to the idea of the day of the Lord, the parousia, and Daniel 73 coming like a thief. If it's coming like a thief, it's coming at a time that we don't know, therefore it's imminent. We know it's coming, but we don't know when it's coming. Okay? Notice James 5, 8. James says this. He says, you too be patient. He's saying this to all believers. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Now, notice the term, the coming of the Lord. The coming is parousia. So he's using the technical term for the second advent of Christ. He's saying it, it's near. Now, the question is, well, how near? Is it a day away? 
a month away, a week away, a year away, a thousand years. You get the idea. You don't know. It's near. The idea is literally you can render it. It is at hand. In the very next verse, if you look on, it goes on to talk about how the judge is standing right at the doors. Well, the image there is of a courtroom scene where the, do- the judge can walk through the doors and enter in to give a verdict. And so again, that describes the doctrine of imminence. Now, let me address this pushback that I've gotten over the years. And people will say, you know what, Eric? There are other events in the Bible that are described as being near, and yet we know that they're not imminent. For example, turn your Bibles to John 6, 4. I'm going to show you where this term near is used for a date that is known. John 6, 4. This is some pushback that I have received over the years, and I want you to understand how to answer these objections. Again, James 5, 8 and many other passages talk about the Lord being near. That is His coming. It's at hand. But some would say, especially in the pre-wrath and post-trib viewpoints, they'll say, look, John 6, 4, it says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was near. Now, that same term for near was used in James 5, 8 for the coming of Christ being near. And those who object to the doctrine of imminence will say, hey, Eric, how can you say that the rapture can happen at any moment, the coming of Christ, because after all, The same term for near was used for the Passover, and they knew exactly the date of the Passover. Well, in a sense, as I've just said that, I've answered the reason why the objection doesn't hold. Because the term near is being used in apples and oranges. We're comparing two different categories. You see, when it comes to the timing of the rapture, it's an unknown date. Does anyone know when the Passover happens? It's on the 14th day of Nisan. So do you see in John 6, 4, when he says, now the Passover, the feast was near, well, they would know how near. If it was given on Wednesday, this message, and they said it was near, well, if it was on Friday, the Passover, you would say, well, it's just two days away. So do you see, context tells us when you have a known date, the Passover, yes, it's the 14th day. When someone says it's near, you can look at your calendar and see how near it is. But what's the date for the parousia of Christ? Well, there isn't one. No one knows the day or the hour. You see, that's why when it says the coming of the Lord is near, it is imminent. Because you have no earthly idea or heavenly idea. Not even the angels in heaven know what date it is. And so you have no idea how near it is. That's what creates the doctrine of imminence. Let me give you another passage. Turn your Bibles to Philippians 4, 5. So I want you to see that this is all over the place once you start looking for it. Philippians 4, 5. Philippians 4, 5. Notice it says, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Now here I don't think it's talking about the imminence in the sense of Christ being with us spiritually. I think it's talking about the imminence in the sense of the Lord's coming. Okay, does everybody understand the first category? We make a distinguish, we distinguish between the category of transcendence, that God is other, and that He's eminent. That is, He is with us. Okay? I'm not I'm claiming that the nearness of the Lord isn't about that category. I'm talking about the imminence of the coming of Christ. I think that that's what's being referred to there. So again, you see Paul talking about the nearness of the Lord. Look at Romans 13, 12. We'll be coming to this in our studies in Romans. Romans 13, 12. 
<clears throat> Please turn your Bibles there. <clears throat> Romans 13, 12. Paul says, The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, when it talks about the day being near, what's it referring to? What's the day of the Lord? The day of the salvation of God's people and the judgment upon the enemies. And so here you see Paul using just a two-sphere system. You have the nighttime that you and I are living in now, the time of darkness where the Messiah isn't reigning on the earth, where there's still rebellion. But that's contrasted with what? The daylight coming when the Messiah returns. And notice again, this day is what? It's near. Well, how near? Is it tomorrow? Is it next month? Is it next year? You're not told. It's near. That's the idea in the New Testament. It's at hand. And that's why Jesus uses the idea that he's coming like a thief. That's why Paul says the day of the Lord is coming like a thief. Here, once the doctrine of imminence is really taught in the scriptures. Okay? Now, if that's true then, we have to understand that the Olivet Discourse is not giving you signs that are preceding the 70th week of Daniel. Remember in our Olivet Discourse message we gave in Mark 13, all the signs happen within the 70th week. There's nothing to tip you off as to when this time period is going to come. Now, I mentioned last time that the parousia, the coming of Christ, is a composite event, meaning it's not going to be just on a 24-hour day. It's going to be many days. And the example I gave you was comparing Matthew 24, 37, where Matthew records Jesus saying, for the coming, here's the parousia of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. And remember, as he goes on to describe the days of Noah, the point is not that, yes, as in the days of Noah it was so sinful, it will be just like that as, as far as sinfulness goes in the future day. That's not the point. Yes, that's, I think, inferred. It's, people are always going to be sinners. But the point of Jesus using the days of Noah is to say that in those days, things were going on as it always had been. They're eating and drinking and, and they're giving away in marriage. Life was going on as it always had. And all of a sudden, the rains came and they were destroyed. Sun destruction came. Well, that's the way it will be in the future coming of Christ. People will be going on as they always have been, and the rapture occurs, and the wrath of God comes. That's the way it will always be. Yes, Eric. Such a, you're on such a roll here. I hate to interrupt you, but I have a question uh, about the days of Noah. Yeah. I think that during those days, I think, and this is where this is really just a question. I, I've had the impression that during the days of Noah, people noticed that he was building this ark sure. <laughs> and warning them about something that had never happened. Right. And, and they ignored him. Yeah. And just like, so the fact that most people will just ignore it. Absolutely. That, absolutely. That, what they had was Noah's preaching to them, didn't they? In fact, um, turn your Bibles to Hebrews eleven seven. I'm going to show you you're exactly right. Hebrews eleven seven. I'll show you that. I think you're onto something there. <clears throat> Hebrews eleven seven. Notice what it says about Noah. Notice in 
Hebrews 11, 7, it says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world. Notice, by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So here he's building an ark, and it serves as an example that wrath is coming. Yet do the people repent? Do they listen to him in any way? No. But notice there, he was being warned of things yet unseen. There was nothing to tip him off. There wasn't any vision. There was nothing to tip him off other than what? The word of God. And that's the same thing that our generation has today. Okay, let me just compare then Matthew 24, 37, the coming, the singular parousia. Here Luke records the same thing. He just uses a different term. Luke 17, 26, Jesus says, and just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days, notice plural, of the Son of Man. So does everyone see that the plural days of the Son of Man is synonymous with the singular parousia or the coming of the Son of Man? Okay, so again, let me pull up my pointer here. This is why we should conceive the parousia not just as a one-day event as the post-tribulationalists see it. You see, they see Jesus coming back and it all happens in a 24-hour period. That's the coming of the Lord. And if you believe it to be a longer time period than that, they, they scoff at you if you're a pre-tribulationalist. Well, notice Jesus himself links the coming as to be a many-day or a composite event. And that's why, again, the parousia should be seen as the entirety of Daniel's 70th week. Yes, Julie. I have a question that I've had before regarding other scriptures, but yeah. I have the ESV. Mm. So in James, John, um, and Romans, the passages you referred to, um, the parousia, which is at hand, is used in the ESV, yeah. but then on um, Philippians 4, 5, it says near, the Lord is near. And so I'm wondering if, the, if it's the same word parousia, why is it translated? Yeah, the term near there isn't parousia. Um, that was simply in the James 5, 8 passage where he talks about the coming of the Lord is near. The term coming is parousia. So the term near is actually ingitso or ingus. Oh, a different it's one. It's an okay. adverb or a verb, and it typically means at hand or near. Yeah, so, I've had that question yep. come up before in different teachings where um, it's been the same word, but it had a different translation, so I've wondered about that before. Yeah, absolutely. So you're right. The near is from a different term. Ingus usually is the adverb, and that simply means it's near or at hand. Yep. So whether it's the John 6-4 passage where the Passover was near, Ingus, or whether it's the James 5-8, the parousia is near, Ingus, it's the same phrase, same term, but the, the term coming, parousia, was exclusive there to that James 5.8 passage, if that makes sense. Yep, very good. Yeah, Bob. This is a good illustration about authorial intent. Yeah. We need to realize that in every language, and it's certainly true in English, certainly true in Greek, there's a range of meanings for terms. So if you if you can just get out a concordance and find out it was the same Greek word every single time, that doesn't prove that it always means the exact same thing. Exactly. And so the rule that I learned, and I think it's a good one, it's very helpful, is the first place you look is within the writings of the same author yeah. in a very similar context. Exactly. Or same context. So like when we're doing John, 
I'm having us. It isn't what the force is like, it's pretty generic. You find it throughout the. But what we want to know is why, how does John use it, and why does he have it here or in a certain context? And right. That's what Eric's doing right exactly. now. Exactly, yeah. Amen. Thank you. And yeah. when I get to Ephesians, I'm going to do the same thing. Exactly, that's right. And it's not as easy as it always means the same thing. Right. Because there's always a range of meanings. And we have more tools than they did. Right. Why do I say that? Well, we can make bold, italics, footnotes, call-outs. There's all kinds of ways yeah. to emphasize or, or... Yep. But they had... This, right. They had to just write it out. Somebody had to write it out with no space to spare. Yeah. And so there were different ways of doing things. So we just need to learn what the author meant. Right not what we wish it said. Amen. Well said. In fact, you know, um, I'm thank you for bringing that point up. We're going to see how terms are going to be used very similarly in John 3.10 and John 17.15, where it's, I'll keep you from the hour of trial. The verb tereo in the preposition ek is used only one other time by John, and that's in John 17.15. It's very important to see how John uses that phrase, and I'll show you how it proves um, the pre-trib rapture. I'll be showing you evidence of that later. But what I want to continue on now is I want to talk about this composite event, the fact that it's imminent. And if it's imminent, what I'm going to be showing you is that you and I are going to be exempt from the wrath that is in it. So that's what I'm going to show you. So what I'm going to show you is build a case now to show you if this time of wrath is imminent in the 70th week of Daniel, I'm going to show you that from the scriptures we have a precedent where we as the people of God are going to be removed prior. Now, it's not so says me, so says the scriptures. Let me give you the abundant examples. For example, back to Luke 17, 26 through 29. Listen very carefully to what Jesus says. He says, And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage. Okay, so stop there. Life was going on as it always had been. Okay? Um, by the way, just a quick aside, when you're in the 70th week of Daniel and you lose a quarter of the earth's population due to sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts, is that life as it always has been? <laughs> Negative, exactly right, Mike. So that's not life as it always has been. So anyway, so let's keep going. It says, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So notice life was going as it, on as it always had. And all of a sudden, Noah enters the ark, and the flood came. Noah, the righteous one, and his family are saved, and the destruction comes. Do you see the precedent? Salvation of the believer, the wrath comes. He keeps going, verse 28. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting. I don't know what happened to my W there. They were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, what happened? It rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. So here in this one paragraph, Jesus gives us two examples, one from Noah and one from Lot, that the righteous are removed prior to the wrath coming. That's the precedent set in Scripture. 
So what's all this nonsense, pietistic, we can handle it, give me the wrath of God, give me Antichrist and all the wrath, I can do it, I can pull myself up by the bootstraps and any, everyone else may fall away Jesus, but I'm going to hang in there through all the wrath of God all the way to the very end of the tribulation period. That's pietism. That's not what the scripture teaches. The precedent set in scripture is that the people of God are removed prior to the wrath coming. Why can't we just accept that? That's the precedent that's set in scripture. The reason I'm saying the other is that's the post-tribulationalist view. The post-tribulationalist view says you and I are just escapists. Well, no, actually, we're just being biblicists. <laughs> yeah. Another point to remember. Only God knows the heart. Yes. Okay? And watching theological debate, political debate, any kind of debate, one thing that happens, and we got to not do this, and then when it happens, if you are baiting somebody, call the other person on it. Only God knows the motives of the heart. Yeah. Do we agree? Amen. Okay. So you only believe this because you're full of fear yeah. and you want to get out of here. Right. Well, how does somebody else know my motives? Right, right. How do you know that? Right, amen. You only believe this because... So we assume we know everybody else's motives, and they're all bad, but mine is good. Right, right. Well, just think about the category. Well, what was it? I don't even remember the passage. Jesus wasn't committing himself to men because he knew what was in them. Yes, right. Where he was knew that? what was in them, yeah. Somebody should get, find that as a good concordance. But uh, the point is... There's a difference between the regenerate and the unregenerate, but anybody can have mixed motives. Right. And so we cannot assume that whoever doesn't agree with whatever we want to debate has all the bad motives. Right, amen. And there's ways of calling that. Just say, are you saying you know the motives that are hidden in somebody else's heart if you do, are you claiming to be God Almighty? Right. And they'll go, well, they'll, go, they'll back off every time because they don't want to claim that. That doesn't mean I haven't been guilty of it, but if I ever do that, then you, you, you tell me to back off because I should. God knows the heart. Amen. We don't know it. So go ahead. Exactly right. Um, the reason I mention this, too, is if you go onto a lot of websites, if you go onto YouTube, for example, and you see debates from post-tribulationalists, typically what they'll claim is that there's no evidence at all for the pre-tribulational rapture. It's simply Christians not wanting to do their due diligence and go through wrath or to suffer tribulation. It's that idea, and they hear it time and time again. I looked at, I don't know how many different videos where I was seeing people make that claim. Well, it's interesting, throughout Scripture, we see this idea that the people of God are saved, then the wrath comes. Okay, so that's the precedent we have in Scripture. Yeah, right. I was thinking about Lot, and maybe I'm, I'm wrong, but he wanted to stay in the city. God sent the angels, and then the angels basically drug them out of the city. Yeah, know? very good point. Kind of yeah, by hook or by crook, God gets his elect out, doesn't yeah. he? He does. And so there you have a great example where God does get his elect out of the way of wrath. Now, by the way, I'll show you an example from Noah. Some people object to Noah being an example of the godly being removed prior to wrath because he's in the ark. And after all, the ark is in the flood, so to speak. But think about this. 
There was no other location other than going to heaven that Noah and his family could have been in. So being in the ark really is the removal of God's wrath. It's the only means of salvation on this earth when a universal flood comes. Now, let me show you another example. I know we showed this before, but turn your Bibles to Isaiah 26, 18 through 21. Because a lot of people claim that this idea that the people of God are going to be removed prior to the wrath that's coming is some new invention by Schofield or some other uh, dispensationalist in the 19th century, or perhaps it's some new invention by the New Testament writers. But I'm going to show you that no, in fact, the prophets were teaching the same thing. Isaiah 26, 18 through 21. This is in a section of Isaiah that's often deemed the little apocalypse because the themes in it are so similar to that which we see in the book of Revelation. Notice Isaiah 26, it begins by the cry of the people of God. We were pregnant, it says, we writhed in labor. We gave birth, as it seems, only to the wind. Now stop there. Why is this idea of pregnancy and labor so important? Well, in the context of eschatology, it often refers to the labor pains associated with the day of the Lord. But notice here in this particular context, they could not accomplish salvation. It says we could not accomplish deliverance for the earth. They couldn't bring about the messianic kingdom. They couldn't bring that birth, the birth of the new age about. It couldn't come by human effort. It says, nor were inhabitants of the world born. But now notice the great promise, verse 19. This is from God. He says, your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn. Now stop there. What's this image of the dead rising, the corpses rising, then with the dew? Well, what's interesting with the dew analogy is that in the book of Exodus, remember how God gave manna to the people of God? He gave it to them where? In the, in the dew. So the dew is always seen as something that's life-giving in the scriptures. It brings even irrigation to an otherwise parched land. So it's the idea of this is life-giving. Life is coming. The dead are going to rise. The corpses will rise. Well, notice it keeps going. It says, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. So certainly this is a reference to the resurrection. We have a resurrection. Notice your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. The departed spirits will come out of the earth. Three phrases that are referring to resurrection. But then notice in verse 20, God says, come my people, enter into your rooms. Now stop there. They enter into your rooms. The rooms there are the inner chamber. It's the inner chamber where the king would be, oftentimes in a place where you'd have a monarch. Okay, so this is an inner chamber where the people of God are called to. And it often brings to my mind the John 14 passage where Jesus says, in my father's house there are what? There are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you. But he's going to what? He's going to come to them and bring them to himself so that where he is, there they may be also. Notice in the John 14 passage, Jesus isn't going to be with them, but he's taking them so that they will be with him where he is. All right? Well, very similar language. Come, my people, enter into your rooms, the inner chamber, and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while. Notice there's a time period. Until, until indignation. Now, the term indignation in Hebrew is za'am, literally is wrath, until wrath runs its course. So stop there. What do we have thus far in Isaiah 26? We have the resurrection of the people of God. 
They're hidden in an inner room until what? The wrath runs its course. Hmm. That sounds like something we've been learning in our eschatology course in, from New Testament biblical passages. Notice, why do they have to hide until this wrath runs its course? Verse 21 of Isaiah 26, it says, For behold, remember, behold, it tips you off to the miraculous intervention of God. Yahweh is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth. Stop there. Remember the phrase in the book of Revelation, those who dwell upon the earth? How many times does it occur? At least eight times. And every time it refers to unbelievers. Notice, this is to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. So the deeds are going to be exposed, and there the wrath of God is poured out. But notice again, the people of God are exempt and are spared prior. Let's give another example. Matthew 24, 37 through 39. Again, Jesus says, For the coming, there's the term parousia, of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Okay, so now the people of God are saved. It says, and they did not understand. This is the unregenerate. Until the flood came, here's destruction, and took them all away. So will the parousia of the Son of Man be. So they had no idea the unregenerate in their day. The people of God, Noah's family, were saved, and then the destruction came. So will be at the parousia, the coming of Christ. Yes? Um, yeah, I just wonder about this uh, Matthew 24, the Olivet uh, Discourse. Um, a, lot of, a lot of people say that believe in pre-trib yeah. wrath a lot of pe- and the imminence. A lot of people say that um, there's birth signs in there, and, and of course you say no to that, right? Exactly. And let me, let me explain why. Okay. <clears throat> okay, so a lot of people, like I heard today driving from Jan Markell, she had a yeah. guy at a conference, and he's yeah. talking about all these there's, signs. There's a lot of them. Exactly. He's saying say the, these signs are happening here and now. Right. Okay, and they're birth pains. Right. What I'm saying is, no, the signs and the birth pains are exclusively in the 70th week of Daniel. Now, let me prove it to you. Turn your Bible to Matthew 24, 15. I, I'll, I'll open mine up as well here. Matthew 24, 15 gives you the timing indication of what time period Jesus is referring to. So you're not left wondering what time period he's referring to. He just tells you. So remember, prior to this, he's described, in my opinion, the entirety of the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years. In other words, from Matthew 24, 4 to Matthew 24, 14, Jesus has given you a perusal, a a summary of the 70th week, the last seven years, what is inside of it. Now, proof that that's right is when you get to verse 15, by way of recapitulation, he brings you back to the midpoint. And here's the timing indicator. He says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. Okay, now stop there. When does the abomination of desolation occur? Well, it occurs in the 70th week of Daniel. It's the midpoint. We know that from Daniel 9.27. So now we have a timing indicator that shows us this isn't happening in the church age now. This is something that's going to happen in the 70th week. Are you with me? 
Okay? In fact, if you continue, you'll see the Israel-centric nature of it. Notice those who are in Judea are to flee to the mountains. Now, a lot of pushback that I often get from people is to say, well, if you hold to this idea that the signs are within the 70th week and the church is removed, then there's not relevance of the Olivet Discourse for the church. But first of all, let me just give a couple of pushbacks to that. Number one, I would say when Jesus says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, you're to flee those in Judea are to flee to the mountains. Think about how would we apply that as a church now? In other words, he's specifically talking to those who are in Israel. So when the abomination of desolation occurs, are people in Minnesota supposed to flee to the local hill? Well, no. I mean, um, so my pushback is, obviously, this is really directed towards the people of Israel. And why, the first 69 weeks had to do with the people of Israel. The last 70th week has to do with the people of Israel. Now, People will say, well, Eric, are you making some false divide between the church and Israel? No, I'm not. What I'm simply saying is these are my promises. And the way that this passage applies to me is I know that God is going to be faithful to all of his promises. Why isn't that a sufficient application to the church? To know that just as God promised one day he's bringing the kingdom to Israel and all of his words are going to be literally fulfilled, I say, yes, indeed, Jesus is affirming that very thing. So that's how it applies. It's not that it doesn't apply to the church. It's how it applies. So when I see the words flee to the mountains, I don't say, well, you know what? I think I'm going to be here, and I'm going to Buck Hill. Okay? I don't think that that's for us. I think the idea is that it's obviously for the people of Israel. Yeah, Bob. Yeah, that's a good answer. And I was always confused about this until I was preaching many years ago and studying, and I started reading Kenneth Bailey, yeah. I referred to. And I began to realize that there's a chiastic structure, okay? And it all makes sense if you go back. To the question. There, there's two questions, right? Yeah, exactly. Tell us when these things happen, and what is the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And they're answered in, in <coughs> reverse order according to the typical chiasm. And so the, the first question is answered in, uh, for, starting in verse 36. Yeah, Perry Day. Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows. And that goes all the way down for a long ways. So the first part, from that Perry Day, yeah. By the way, the pre-wrath people can't deal with that. No, they? they can't. That's right. They have no answer for it. I was forced to learn this because I was challenged by people. Like you said, well, there's you got to learn how to debate. Yeah. All the pre-rapture, pre, all the pre-trib rapture people say that. Well, I don't care what all the pre-rapture. Rapture people. I'm saying because I believe it's in the Bible. Right, right. Because you hear this political debate goes along the same line. Just I'm learning. Yeah. Okay. And I've, I've I won't teach something usually unless I'm willing to debate it. But I was younger and I took on every debate. Yeah. But there's tactics. Well, you all the Christians say that, or all the people say. It. I don't care what all the people say. What's the evidence? for what we're discussing right now. Yes. My favorite one was debating Doug Padgett, 
and I was arguing that categories are valid, and I used the illustration, we don't walk through walls, we walk through doors. If you can't define a door and a wall, and then, so his response was, radio waves go through walls, <laughs> and then he went to some other topic, and yeah. there's some other topic. Equivocated, yeah. Equivocated, well then, I made a mistake dealing with whatever the last thing he said was. Right. But the fact was, the radio waves are not persons, and if radio waves cannot be distinguished, you can't dial your radio to the station you want. It's nonsense. It'll happen again and again and again. The only thing that matters, what did God say? Amen. Scripture alone, what did God say? Yep. So when I saw this chiastic structure, and it makes all the sense in the world, because we think it has to be in the order we want it. Exactly. That's not how it works. So once the, the 70th week begins, we have verse here, verses, uh, well, whatever you're talking to. Yeah, exactly. Here. You know, you're right, Bob. verse 36. Exactly. Every day means it's a new topic. Now concerning. Now the other question is being answered. Exactly. And all everything that follows says we don't know. Yeah, exactly right. It makes all the sense in the world. In fact, yeah, everybody, have everybody turn their Bibles to Matthew 24. Let's look at the question together. Yeah, you know, so if we don't care what God said in the Bible, and we don't believe that it's clear or normal, or we think human tradition is more important than what God said, then we're not going to learn the truth no matter what we do. Right, right, Exactly. So let me, let me just kind of bring you through a reading of Matthew 24. So this is the Olivet Discourse. Now, Matthew and Mark structure the Olivet Discourse. Remember, they're inspired by the Spirit. They focus only on the end, only on the future 70th week. Luke 21 differs in that Luke has Jesus answering about 70 AD, but also the future, okay? But for our purposes, we just want to know what Matthew has said. Matthew and Mark are parallel, really, Notice what the question is. Matthew 24, we'll start at verse 3. Notice the setting. It says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives. Okay, stop there. Why is the Mount of Olives significant? Because to the disciples, their Lord has just left the temple, desolate. They're now at the Mount of Olives. And in the Mount of Olives, when they're there and they hear Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple, what they understand from Zechariah 12 through 14 is that when all of the enemies surround Jerusalem to destroy it, the Messiah is going to return and set his feet on the Mount of Olives. That's Zechariah 14, verses 1 through 3. So they attach the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple to the end of the age and the coming of the Messiah. Okay, so notice their two-part question. By the way, when you get to Luke 21, you'll notice Luke does not state that they were on the Mount of Olives when Jesus is giving his answers. So that's, that's one of the reasons why we know there's a different focus. So notice the question then. They asked privately, tell us, here's the first question, when will these things be? Notice the plural, these things. Well, what things? Well, the things that Jesus had been describing to them. Now, what you're going to see is these things Jesus is going to fill up with the 70th week. It's the 70th week of Daniel. So the first question is, when will these things be? Notice the second question, what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? They assumed when he came, that would be the end of the age. So there's really two questions. When 
and what? What will be the sign? Well, as Bob pointed out, what Matthew does is he records Jesus answering the second question first. What? What are the signs? So from Matthew 24, 4, all the way to Matthew 24, 35, he's giving you the signs. So where are all the signs in? Well, notice Matthew 24, 4, it says, Jesus answered them and said, See, no one leads you astray. For many will come into my name saying, I am the Christ. Stop there. Revelation 6, the beginning of the seal judgments. What's the first thing? The Antichrist comes on the scene. And he comes from a conglomeration of false Christs, the ten. So this fits in with the beginning of the seal judgments. Now, have the seal judgments ever occurred in church history? No. Let's keep writing, reading. Notice verse 6, it says, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Stop there. What do we see in the second seal in Revelation 6? The removal of peace from the earth. The Antichrist before that, its first seal, went out to conquer. By the fourth seal, it's so bad you lose a quarter, 25% of the earth, six times worse than what we saw in World War II, is going to occur in the opening seal judgments. That's why this is a sign. See, if, this, if wars and rumors of wars are just things happening now, you have no sign. Big whoop, there's always been wars and rumors of wars. Well, it is a big whoop when you get into the 70th week of Daniel. Because you've never lost a quarter of the earth's population, followed by another third. You're over a half of the world's population is going to be gone. That's significant. That's never occurred. But notice he says, and you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. Why? Why wouldn't they be alarmed if they saw all that? Because he's speaking to Israel. And Israel has a covenant with the Antichrist. In the first three and a half years, they have protection. So, of course, they don't have to worry. The rampage is happening in the goyim, the nations. So notice he says, for these things must take place. It's the divine necessity. But the end is not yet, the end of the 70th week. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes. Stop there. You have a great earthquake in Revelation chapter 6. It's one of the greatest earthquakes that the world has ever seen. There's going to be topographical changes to the earth. It's going to be so significant. Famines, the famine is so bad in the fourth seal that people are going to be so sick, they won't even be able to defend themselves against wild beasts who will devour them. So these things have never occurred in church history. Then now in verse 9, I believe he's breaking into the great tribulation where the Antichrist wears down the saints for three and a half years, according to Daniel 7.25. He says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end of the 70th week, that's the implication, will be saved. And this gospel, remember, even an angel in heaven will be proclaiming the gospel. It says that's in the book of Revelation. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, by way of recapitulation, he's brought you to the end of the 70th week. Now, he, by way of recapitulation, he brings you back to the midpoint. Notice verse 15, he says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Well, when has that occurred in human history? Well, it hasn't. It's going to occur at the midpoint of the 70th week. That's how we know we're in the 70th week. He gives us the timing point. There we are, the midpoint of the 70th week. He says, then those who are in Judea, notice Judea. He doesn't say, the, he could have said those who are in the world are to flee to the mountains. 
He says, those who are in Judea, let them flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his coat. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Stop there. How many here are ever affected by Sabbath in Minnesota? You ever been affected by Sabbath? Ever had trouble getting gas on Sabbath? Well, maybe back in the 1920s when you had some Puritans running a small little town. Maybe, Bob, you ran into that a little bit with some of your communities. Well, they thought Sunday was Sabbath. Sunday was Sabbath, right. Which, by the way, it is not. Yeah, thank you. Very succinct. So Sabbath would be an issue for whom? For Jews living in Israel. It's Israel-centric. Yes, Eric, I saw you had a question. Was that, that was actually what, what I was going to say. Yeah. In other words, what we have to do, you know, in, in Hebrew, you know, literature, and I'm not an expert, but, I've, you know, just from the little bit of studies, you know, you've got an outline, and then you've got the full, all fleshed out narrative. And so yeah. it's like Jesus, I think, is giving us the outline yes. here. And we, and we really have to think about who these things apply to. And you've got the Jewish, you've got the, yes. the Jewish, and this is where in the study of Romans, which you're doing, which is, it's good timing to do both of these. Yeah. Um, you've got how God is going to keep his covenant with the Jewish people. Yeah, amen. Exactly and it won't be right. all of them. But, but so he's talking a lot here, I think, and I think that's what you're saying to the Jewish remnant, I think, during, oh, during this time. You're exactly right. Is that Eric. correct? Okay. And yet it applies to us because we say, hey, God's going to be faithful to everything that he said. So I look at this. This is directly relevant to me because I'm grafted into them. So this is God keeping all of his words, right? Um, let me just skip now to the end. And I'm sorry, we got another question too from Nancy. I'll skip, I'll, I'll, uh, skip no, keep going. I'll skip to verse 29 though, but you ask your question first. I usually try to figure this out when I get home. But can you help me understand why they go, when you say they go back to the midpoint? Yeah. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yep. What, what I believe is happening from Matthew 24, 4, all the way to verse 14, is Jesus is taking you on a purview from the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, where you have wars and rumors of wars, but don't be frightened yet, right? Because all these things must take place. All of a sudden you get to verse 9, he gets to the midpoint. Notice that. He says they'll bring you to tribulation. That's when Antichrist breaks his covenant. Remember Daniel 7.29, the Antichrist wears the saints down for three and a half years. That's exactly what's going to happen now at verse 9. Well, from verse 9 to 14, he brings you to the end of the tribulation period. It's going to be so bad that even the Jews will turn against one another. Okay, But when you get to verse 14, he's brought you to the end. In fact, notice he says then the end will come. But now what he does is by way of recapitulation, he brings you back to the midpoint and he emphasizes that because the midpoint on the last three and a half years is known as Jacob's great distress, Jeremiah 30, verse 7. And so that's why he brings up, so when you see the abomination of desolation, that's when Antichrist breaks his covenant promises. That's when he's really going to persecute the people of Israel. How long are they nourished in the wilderness, according to Revelation chapter 12? For 1,260 days. Why is that important? Because it's the same time period from the abomination of desolation onward. Do you see that? So it all fits like a glove. So now we know that we're in the 70th week of Daniel. So now when you get to verse 29, he's at the end of the 70th week. And notice he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. It says, then 
will appear in the heaven, the sign of the Son of Man. That is the sign within the 70th week. The Son himself is going to come. It says, And all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Where do we see that idea of him coming on clouds of glory? Daniel 7, the Son of Man comes to bring a kingdom, doesn't he? And it says, And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds. Now, stop there. Why is that not the rapture? Well, the reason it's not the rapture is notice the great trumpet call. There's only one time in the entire Old Testament that the term great trumpet is used. It's in Isaiah 27, 13. And it occurs in the last days where God is going to gather all of the Israelites and bring them back into their homeland. He's going to bring them supernaturally. In fact, he says, I will pluck you up one by one. So the term great is Gabor. And, or excuse me, Gadol. Where's, uh, I'm sorry, yeah. Yeah, Gadol. I'm trying to think of the term for uh, shofar. That's what I wanted to say. Gadol shofar. It's the great trumpet. The only time in the Old Testament that you have Gadol shofar is in Isaiah 27, 13. Well, we have that reference here to the great trumpet. So that shows us that this isn't a rapture passage. It's an ingathering of Israel passage. Now, fast forward here to verse 35. Notice he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. What he's saying is he's affirming all of the things that were referred to in the prophets are going to come to pass. So all of the signs he's just given you are within the last seven years. Now the question he's going to resort to, just as Bob mentioned, when? Remember, that was the first question. When will these things, not just one thing, but these things be? What things? The things of the 70th week. When will it be? When will the 70th week come? That's the question. Notice he says, verse 36, Perry Day is the discourse marker. It's his way of showing us that now there's a new thought. And he says, but concerning that day or hour, the day of the Lord, the hour of trial, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. And then eight different ways he says you can't know. You can't know. You don't know when the 70th week is going to come forth. It's like the days of Noah. It's like a thief. It's like a master who goes away from the house and his servants have no idea when he's coming back. So from Matthew 24, 36, all the way through Matthew 25, we have the answer that you can't know. So does that help? So the first question are the, the, that Jesus answers is actually the second question the disciples asked. What are the signs? That's Matthew 24, 4, all the way to verse 35. Then he switches Matthew 24, 36 onward to answering when will these things be? No one knows. So that's why all the signs, see, you keep going to prophecy conferences and they keep putting things, look at there was an earthquake in Zimbabwe. Aha, he must be near. Well, wait a minute, are we sure that that earthquake is necessarily a sign that he's near? How can he be any more near than being near? We don't know the day or the hour. See, what I'm saying is we don't have any signs to tip us off. There's nothing in this age that will tip you off other than the word of God. Just like the days of Noah, that's all they had. There was no sign. There was no earthquake in Zimbabwe. There was no, there was no cloud on the horizon. There was no celestial appearance of anything. There was nothing except the preaching of the word of God from Noah. That's all they had. And that's what we have. So once people are in the 70th week, then there's tons of signs. Then you have earthquakes that are so severe, you have topographical changes. You have warfare that's so severe, you lose over a quarter of the Earth's population. Oh yeah, then you have tons of signs. But until the 70th week of Daniel, we have no signs. Yep. Does that help, Lonnie? Well, I was, I was just looking at the 
it seems like like we look at things in the world is getting worse and worse and you and you think well maybe the first part is talking about things are going to get worse before the rapture or something like that I I, I don't know uh, but but you say that's not how it should be interpreted. Well, right, um, Anthony, look at the passage right before us here. They were, life was going on as it always had been. They're eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 that the day of the Lord comes while they're saying peace and safety. Okay? I think a lot of the world today could say peace and safety. Yeah, there are certain wars. But let me ask you, when you get to the fourth seal, let's get to the second seal in Revelation 6. God says that peace was taken from the earth. Will the people being say, will they be saying peace and safety when God specifically says that there's no peace and safety? So the day of the Lord happens while they're saying peace and safety. So, for example, we've seen World War II. World War II was the worst war as far as casualty rates for the world. The total population that died as a world population was 4%. At the fourth seal, we lose six times that. Okay, so that's why the signs that Jesus is referring to in Matthew 24, remember he talks about Matthew 24, 22. These are the, it's the worst time period ever. Okay, well, World War II isn't as bad as this coming war, and you can only have one worst time period. Therefore, World War II can't be it because that wasn't a quarter of the Earth's population. Remember I always said you can't have the worstest? You only have one worst, right? Well, if the worst hasn't happened, it's going to happen in the future. Is that, are you, is that clear? So I guess in the, in the church age, you can look at, there's always been bad stuff oh, happening. Yeah. Exactly, all 70 different AD, kinds right. Of, of, so I guess even Luther thought that the end was, was near. So I yeah. guess. In, in a sense, it always is. It's always at hand. We don't know. It could be five minutes from now. It could be 500 years from now. It's at hand. The coming of the Lord is near. How near? Okay. You don't know. Right. right. Yep. So, yeah. So what you and I are seeing are not signs within the 70th week. We're... Remember the labor pains analogy? You and I are going through the discomforts of pregnancy, but we haven't gone through the labor pains. Is, are you with me on there? The labor pains analogy is exceedingly important because once the labor pains begin, that's what Jesus refers to in Matthew 24, 8. These are the beginning of labor pains. Oh, Dean, remember I made that connection back to Isaiah 13, the labor pains? I'm sorry. The, the labor pains are within the 70th week of Daniel. Yep. Yeah, Julie, go ahead. I know uh, Corey Ten Boom thought that we were in the tribulation because of the Holocaust, too. So people have thought that a lot. But I know. The question that I have is um, basically if you were going to write a little short paper, um, Daniel's 70th week for dummies, basically. Sure. Um, I'm a little confused on, okay, so there's a 69th week, which yeah. there's a certain amount of numbered days and everything that leads up to that point. Yeah. But then why are the days and years all just kind of suspended into the future and that 70th week just floats out there? I don't really understand that part. Very good question. Last time when we were talking about this, I, I showed, I think, within the text itself, there's a deliberate division between the 69th and 70th, and here's why. We have to understand this or see it, I think, for ourselves, is that the 69th year, you have the Messiah comes and he's cut off. Okay? Well, the Messiah is cut off at his first advent, but the implication is that the 70th week, he's going to be the one who throws down the Antichrist. Well, that's put forward into a different 70th week, the last seven years. 
So when you start looking at the discourse, it's interesting how the first 69 weeks of years, the first 483 are fulfilled at the first advent, and the first advent is, there's nothing more said about it. Well, then the 70th week is really referring to the events surrounding this, the second advent. Okay, I think it's within the text itself. So the point is, the 70th week has not occurred just as the second advent has not occurred. Now remember, this is confusing to the Jews themselves because they thought when Messiah comes, it was going to be glory all the time. And finally, even Peter finally got his theology right when he said, remember about the prophets who looked to the things to come, that the Spirit of God within them was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Notice finally Peter understood, no, the sufferings had to occur first, 69 weeks, then the glories were to follow the 70th week. So for the Jews, it was all wrapped together. They couldn't distinguish between the first and second advent, but you and I can. And so that's why I think we have to distinguish between the 69th and 70th week. 69th week fulfills the first advent. 70th week is fulfilled by the second advent. Eric? It is, yeah, just with a postponement. Yep, I'm would, sorry. Would Romans 11.25 be support of that? Absolutely. The that's right. In fact, he says, I tell you a mystery. Right. So very important. We're going to get to this uh, next week at the sermon. What's the mystery? The mystery that Paul is revealing is not that Israel is going to be saved, for the prophets foretold that very clearly. The mystery was how it would occur, that the Gentiles would be saved first. Remember, it's until the fullness of the Gentiles Until the fullness in. of the hey, Gentiles. Could you read that, Christy? Sure. Um, for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so then all Israel will be saved. Do you hear the until? The, the until is very important. Akrit in, in the Greek, there's an until. Fullness of the Gentiles come in, and until that happens, Israel won't be saved. Okay. Yeah, Levon. Um, back to Matthew 24, yeah. verses um, like 40. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Yeah. Um, to me, this sounds like the rapture. It is. It I is. believe it is. And when Jesus talks in the parables about like the ten virgins and so forth, you're supposed to be ready to watch. That's yeah. the rapture, not... That's right. There, there's a couple. I, I'm, I'm going to get into this sometime again. I, I did this in the Olivet Discourse teaching in, in Mark 13. But just real quick, the Matthew 24:40 that you just mentioned, notice there's some debate as to whether the taken is taken in judgment or in salvation. And the other one is whether the left is being left for judgment or salvation. The one left is certainly judgment. It's a feimi. It's being literally released or um, it's being abandoned. It'd be that idea. The taken there... The term is parlambano, literally taken to oneself. The Lord is going to take us to himself, you know, so that where we are, there, or where he is, there you and I may be also. Okay, so I believe this is a reference to uh, those who are taken in salvation and those who are left to the wrath of God, and I could prove that exegetically. So good, good point, Levon. So I'm sorry we're out of time, but we'll, uh, we'll bow our heads of prayer. I probably haven't made this any easier, but I wanted to address that all of a discourse question because it's, I think, so important to our uh, eschatology. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this class. I thank you for the love that these people have for your word and for your truth. We pray, Lord, for Bob today, for his voice, and that you'd give us uh, clarity to hear, that you would help us to obey your commands and live lives that are pleasing until you do come again for us through your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.